In our Lord's sovereign plan, he allowed the ministry of his servant, John the Baptist, to overlap the ministry of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for a while, you have these two, for lack of words, better words, dynamic men ministering at the same time and very near to one another. And until John gets arrested by upsetting the wife of Herod with his preaching, his ministry and Jesus were going on simultaneously. John serves as a pattern to all of us who would serve the Lord in any capacity, whether it's in whatever God has you doing, but especially those in ministry. He's unusual in in many ways. We've noted that as we've looked at his biography. Rare do we find a servant of his caliber. Rare rare do you find a man of the the caliber of John the Baptist. But what stands out in the passage before us is what characterized John as a man and as a servant of the Lord, and that is his selflessness. A rare, rare commodity in any of us, but especially in someone of John's stature. Verse 30 sums it up for us. And what a powerful guiding principle for every follower of Jesus Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can we say that together? He must increase, but I must decrease. That is my wife's life's verse, and, uh, and it's mine. And when I met her and she signed on a little card right after we began dating that verse, I thought, well, that's a sign from the Lord. <laughs> you know, she and I have the same. We both have had that as our motto, if you will, and it is engraved inside my wedding band, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. But it's more than just a pretty platitude. It's more than a motto. This John sums up what he knew to be of his own life in ministry and what must be the case. Notice in that verse who? He, the Lord Jesus. The imperative, must. There's no room, there's no other way. He must. And this isn't something that is optional for the believer, but absolutely necessary. And then notice the action here, increasing and decreasing. This was John's motive for living. This was the map for how he carried on his ministry. And this was the guiding principle of his life. Let me ask you, what is yours? Do you have one? Well, some may say, well, Pastor, I'm a Christian. And, of course, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I love him and follow him. But I would ask us all to examine ourselves as we examine this declaration of John the Baptist Could this be seen and observed and measured in my life and in your life that Jesus Christ is ever increasing and we ourselves are decreasing as he is increasing? Do do you have a guiding modus operandi, if you will, that defines your existence, that, that sums up how you do the business of living and of serving Jesus Christ? Sadly, most people don't. Even those who name the name of Christ would be hard put to say, this is my daily guiding uh, imperative for me. And even if they do, it is so pitifully influenced by the world. You'd be surprised if you were to examine your own life and, and thinking, how much of your thinking is the philosophy of the world rather than the, the teaching of Scripture. 
someone sent me recently, and I've not read it through fully, but seven things that people commonly say that, that are not necessarily true. Like you can do anything you want to. All those little uh, things that uh, people say in life, and, and it's a very worldly and very humanistic uh, philosophy. But John's was this. He must increase, but I must decrease. The geographic setting here is given for us in verse 23. And when the Holy Spirit records for us specific details, we ought to take note of them because when we, it's always instructive for us. Notice that John was baptizing in Enon near Salem. Enon means the place of springs. It was named that because there were multiple springs there. And Salem, peace. And what a good place for John to be in. Not a dry or wilderness place as it was where he was called from. He began as a voice crying in the wilderness. He began his ministry in a very desolate place out in the the dry desert. But here, after a time, the Lord has led him to a place of peaceful springs, we might put it. Uh, Not in a barren, sparsely populated area where it is unlikely that any ministry would take place. But, of course, God is sovereign. He chooses where we minister, and he chooses how to bless that ministry. But he's in a place now, uh, even the name of it signifies fruitfulness and blessing. And as he was obedient to the Lord's will for him and followed God's call upon him, as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, announcing and saying, prepare you the way of the Lord. The Lord brought him to a place of refreshment and peace. We pray with the psalmist, let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Jesus was near with his disciples, and they were baptizing And John's ministry was going on, as we've mentioned, at the same time. And he was baptizing those who had repented upon hearing his message. Notice the details, again, that the Holy Spirit records for us in verse 23 as to why John was near the springs. The Bible says because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. You can't expect a Baptist preacher to overlook such information, can you? And it is highly instructive for us. It's it's amazing to me how clear some things are to some people and how foggy they are to others. But let's just look here, and I'll just mention it in passing. Two observations here, both pointing to the mode of baptism. And when put together, they make the, the matter obviously clear. John was baptizing at the springs because, of course, there was much water there. There was enough water there to place the repenter in the, beneath the waters and to bury him as it will, to submerge him underneath the water's surface, coinciding with the transliterated meaning of the Greek word here. If you know that the word baptize is not an English word at all. It's a transliterated word. When the translators came to it, they decided to adopt the Greek word into the English language, the word baptizo, which means, of course, to plunge, to dip, or immerse. As one simple observer commented, and I'll leave it all at that. One doesn't need much water to sprinkle or pour, do they? In fact, the Greek words for sprinkling and pouring are another word than what's used here in the text. When Jesus' disciples were baptizing repenters, not far away from John's own ministry, and we see there in verses 25 and 26 
there arose a question. There always does, doesn't there? Wherever the Lord's work is going on, someone is going to stir something up. And Satan is usually behind the stirring up. Woe to you if you're the one that Satan uses to stir something up. But this is where you have people, you'll have these things going on. And so a theological question arose about purifying. Now, purification was very important to the Jews, but under the, the, the writings of the rabbis, they had added to it until it in itself had become such an observance and a ceremony that, that everything was cluttered and, and covered up with their, uh, their interpretation of it. And so they would ask a question, something like this, how many pots would you say to use in the, the purification ceremony? All the foolish side things. And they begin to ask about purifying, the, the method of purification. And they came into John... And said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness. And he's referring, of course, to Jesus. Remember, he said, The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Notice the exaggeration. Everybody is flocking to hear him. Clearly, the motive is here to discourage John and to arise some dissension here, trying to cause division. And Satan, one of his favorite fiery darts, as you well know, I don't have to tell you, is the fiery dart of discouragement. Just a word placed, just a a nuance, a raising of the eyebrows, some message someone brings to us that someone else said, some some question, some raising some question. And this was the type question Paul describes in 2 Peter 2, verse 23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. That's good advice, isn't it? It gave no help to the situation at hand, had nothing to do with either John's ministry or Jesus' ministry. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. These Jews really didn't want to know the truth about what they thought about the purification process, but they did want to strive with John. Sarcastically, they were saying to John, Now, teacher, the one that was with you beyond Jordan just a a while back, the one you pointed to and bragged on and testified about, did you know that he's baptizing, and I'm sure here they gave much exaggeration, and all men are coming, everybody's flocking. In fact, as you'll notice, John, that many are leaving you and following him. Everybody's going over there. You know how we use those terms, everybody, everyone, all. We never actually defined who they are or how many there are, but I used to use that as a kid. I'd come to my parents and say, everybody's going, you know, somewhere, and uh, my, my mother always wisely said, I'm sure as your did, no, not everybody. You're not going to be going uh, there. So there'll be one less that would have been there. But we use those all-inclusive terms like I'll be the only person on earth not in part of it. And she'd say, well, that'd be all right. You'll, you'll get by. But John's followers were waning. His ministry was, if you will, from a human perspective, shriveling up. He did not have the followers that he once had, as we saw at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, they're diverting attention to Jesus and his miracles. Uh, 
and to the, the work that Jesus was doing. And many of them were going to hear and see Jesus and begin following him. John's were getting fewer and fewer. Wise is the person that does not judge everything by what appears. You know, numbers and circumstances and uh, people, there are all kinds of things that, that we do get information from, but ministry and the success of ministry is far, far deeper than those surface things and those spreadsheet things that most people point to as success. We need to be very careful in our own spiritual lives, in assessing our own spiritual growth and progress, that we don't lean upon things that the Holy Spirit does not lean upon. Satan loves uh, one of his favorite tools because it, it hits a nerve so raw in all of us. It's a nerve that uh, is outward. It's, it's not covered very well. It's easily hit, if you will. And I think you'll understand when I just tell you what it is in just a moment. It is common to all of us. It is always on the surface and can be easily found and hit. And it is the raw nerve of pride. Do I have the right congregation this morning? All of us must deal with it. It is self. It is us at our worst. Pride is the lifeblood of the old fallen part of us, the unsaved man, the old man. And while we are judiciously dead to sin as believers, the old man still pride is what fuels him and gets him going at a moment's notice. It flows through and revives the basest, lowest parts of us and must be killed every day. We must put off the old man and put on the new. John knew who he was. So few people do. John knew that he had been called of God, saved of God, and placed in the ministry of the Lord to due to nothing of himself. None of his own credentials as a man or his background would have caused him to, to be that. The Lord in his sovereignty called and chose John and used him in this specific ministry as the preparer, the forerunner, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew his ministry would be short-lived. He knew it was just for a period of time. And may I remind all of us that these lives that we're living are very short and fleeting, aren't they? We're here today and gone tomorrow. The, the abilities, the opportunities. Paul told the Corinthians, pray, there's a great door of effectual open for us, but there are many adversaries. And the urgency of that prayer request is that this door will be narrowing and could close. Let us seize the opportunity while it is day and work, because the night cometh when no man can work. And that's true for every one of us. Who knows what a day will bring forth? Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. We know not what tomorrow holds for us. And so, John knew who he was. He fully understood his role. Do you? Until you do, you will never be able to accept the, the, the waxing and waning of life. The times of periods where, God, it seems that the Lord has put you aside. 
or that he's using someone else or blessing. We like to use that favorite term of blessing someone else more than it appears to be blessing or using us. And then the Satan will begin to appeal to our pride and say, well, that's not fair. Why do they get this prayer answered in this situation in their life? And that's exactly what he was doing in John's life. John doesn't get off track that easily, though. And that's why we would all do well to take note of his response here. And to learn a lesson that will help us immensely in life and ministry. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so I want the text, our text there in verse 30, we'll take it at that and divide it into two parts. I think that'll be plenty for us to chew on this morning, don't you? I want you to notice, first of all, the imperative of Jesus' prominence. The imperative of Jesus' prominence. And then we'll consider the place of Jesus' followers. That's easy enough to divide, isn't it? It's a simple verse. You'll never forget that verse. There are keynotes of Scripture that will come to mind so easily and readily, and this is one of them, even if you've never considered it before. He must increase, but I must decrease. We look here and see what the Lord has for us, this contrast between increasing and decreasing. John clearly understood what so many preachers and parents and professors rarely understand. We are working ourselves out of our jobs. Do you understand that? You're here for a period of time, whether it's a parent or in your job, your ministry, as the pastor of this church, I'll just use myself. I know that I am working myself out of a job. I realize that as God's servant here, that I'm called to equip and to teach you the work of the ministry and others, and that at some point the Lord will call me home, and uh, if he tarries his coming, he will allow someone else to do what we're doing. All of us need to realize that's where we are, whether it's a parent, a parent who doesn't learn that will try to hold on to the apron strings or or the billfold strings or whatever it is long after they should. You are training your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord for them to be on their own, serving and honoring and glorifying the Lord on their own. All of us, the job that, whatever you want to call it, that we now have is limited in its sphere, is for a period of time, and has has certain boundaries that the Lord has put there that only He knows. We've called to the kingdom for such a time as this, as uh, Mordecai told Ruth. A radio listener wrote me several years ago and said, please pray for me. I have a pressing decision about serving, and I don't know what to do. And I don't remember this, but I wrote him. He wrote me this week and said, I want you to know how the Lord used that in my life. I wrote him a card, and he said, I put in there, who knows that the Lord has called you for the kingdom for such a time as this. He went on and was elected city council in the city where he lives. He served as a councilman there for three years. And he said when he got that note in the mail that day, it was like a light bulb. He'd been struggling about what to do. But that God had called him to do and serve in that capacity for such a time as this. Let me just tell you, the only time you have is this time right now. Yesterday's gone, isn't it? As our late pastor used to tell us, it's a canceled check. It's gone. I, I saw, we very rarely see canceled checks anymore. Uh, 
But I used one the other day where they run it through, you know, and you don't even have to write it out, and they gave it back, and I saw it laying there on the counter, and I wondered why that check was there, but it was a canceled check. It had already been used, spent. There's nothing you can do with it. Today is always, tomorrow is a promissory note, isn't it? But it's not here yet, and none of us can brag. We can plan about tomorrow, but none of us can do anything tomorrow because tomorrow's not here. What we can do, take a deep breath. This is today. This is now. This is all we have. We're working ourselves out of our jobs. We're here for only a time, a brief period, predetermined by the Lord. The psalmist said, my times are in His hands. I take great comfort in that. I don't worry about that because if if they're in the Lord's hands, they're not in whose hands? My times are not in my hands. He has set the boundaries of our habitation, he says in Acts. Where we will be born, to whom we'd be born to, how long our sojourn will be here. Our lives and where we are placed here on earth, placed here to glorify our Father in heaven so that others seeing us in our works and ministries will see us and what we do and be drawn to Him and glorify our Father but not us. And John got that. He knew that. How few people do. He must increase, but I must decrease. The imperative of Jesus' prominence. The Old Testament prophecies concerning Him foretold this imperative. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the increase of His government. And peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus Christ will reign from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Oh, may he reign in my heart this morning. In the kingdom of Christ's Lamb, And in His church, and in my home, and in your home, may Jesus Christ reign. May He increase. The pride of life is what the Bible coins it. The pride of life. It often comes from unwarranted, needless, fruitless comparison. It's interesting to note that several of the most prominent servants of the Lord were put in the same predicament that we see John here. Now, I want you to get the picture here. John is ministering, and this delegation comes up to him and says, you know, of course, that the one that you pointed out to, he's eclipsing you. The crowds are much larger over across the way where this man is ministering. They began to be used willingly or unwillingly as tools of Satan to cause uh, discouragement or the attempt to cause discouragement in John's life and ministry. But none of, Mo- none of the Lord's children will be exempt in this matter. We see that Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, where two men were prophesying in the camp, not at the tabernacle, but outside the camp. And a young man ran up and told Moses, Moses even, and even Joshua, when he heard about it, he said, my Lord Moses, forbid them. Tell them to stop. Moses' reply was this, Envious thou for my sake? Are you jealous for me? 
Would God that all servants, God's people, were prophets. That's what Moses' response to someone else prophesying. I wish everybody would prophesy for the Lord and tell forth His truth and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. What a man. No wonder the Holy Spirit records of Moses that he was the meekest man on earth. John the Baptist was put in this predicament here. Our Lord Jesus in Luke 19, verse 46, with His disciples, there arose a reasoning among them. It always does, isn't it? Among God, even the Lord's closest followers, this, this comparison and examining and scrutinizing, who's the greatest, who has the best ministry, who's the best preacher? There arose a reasoning among them which should be greatest. And He took a child. Remember, a child was considered a nobody in that society at that time. Children were pushed aside, seen and not heard, and not ever put upon the knee of someone as prominent as Jesus. And Jesus took a child and put him on his lap and said, He that is least among you, the same shall be great. And said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. The apostle Paul was put into prison, and his enemies used the the opportunity to say, Well, that's, that's what we thought he was. He's in it for the money, or... His motives are wrong. He's not a true disciple. They begin to tear him down. And, and he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident of my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing that to add affliction to my bonds but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? What about that? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's interesting here to see John's response to the question, carefully choosing his words, not for his audience only, but for us to consider this morning. We see there in verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. We see here all true ministry comes from God. It's not my ministry or your ministry, or their ministry. It has been received. All that we have has been entrusted to us. It has been given. It has been received from heaven. God chooses who He will use, and to what extent, and how He will bless them, or whether He will choose not to seem to give any blessing publicly or measurably to the eyes of those who are measuring and and looking and, and analyzing. He knows our frame, doesn't He? He knows what we can do. He knows how much we can take. He knows what prominence might do to someone. He knows if John were to keep on going in the direction, that he too might have been lifted up with pride. And so he knows exactly the extent, the breadth, the length, the depth of what he can do with us. 
He knows how long He will allow us to minister. These things are in His hands. Aren't you glad of that? There's no reason for comparing or competition. That's all of the flesh. In fact, Paul faced this on more than one occasion. He established the church at Corinth and ministered to them. And they, after he left, they began to criticize and to measure him with other preachers. And Paul writes to them and he says this, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We're all just business managers. We're all a steward is just manages someone else's affairs. In the Lord's work, this is his work. It is required as stewards that a man be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged or examined of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. You know why? He tells us why he does. And he's using that word judging as estimating, adding up, giving a consensus or a, uh, an announcement to how effective his ministry is. I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Let's keep that in mind. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. And we use this word judge not in saying what is right or wrong, but the Scripture clearly declares. People love to use that and say, don't judge me, don't say what it is. But when the Scripture declares God's ways and what's right and wrong, that's one matter. He's speaking here of critiquing and analyzing the success, the depth, the breadth of a ministry. And he says, we're not equipped to do that. For one thing, it's too early. Judge nothing when before the time until the Lord come, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. And that no one of you be puffed up. What is that? That's pride, isn't it? That none of you be puffed up against one another. For who make you to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? And if thou didst receive it, why do you glory as if you hadn't received it? Now you're full. Now you're rich. You have reigned as kings with us. And I think that God hath set us forth as the apostles' last Paul said, we're in last place, as if it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You know so much, Paul tells them. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you're honorable, but we are despised. For even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of this world. My, does it come to that? Think of the word filth. Paul said as believers, that's what the world thinks of us. As apostles, as followers of Christ, we are considered... The off-scouring, the, the dirty dishwater, that which you would throw out, it's good for nothing. That's our place. And once you realize that's your place, that's, you, there's not any farther to go, is there? I mean, the filth of the world, that's as low as it gets. Paul said, we gladly 
count ourselves as that for the cause of Christ. You see, the problem enters in when you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. All that we have has been given to us in Christ. Our salvation, which none of us earned, but was graciously given as a gift of Christ. The fact that we heard the gospel and have been exposed to the, the working of the Holy Spirit of God is all a supreme and sovereign work of the Lord. What could we brag about this morning? Is there anyone here, if we gave testimony, who could stand up and say, I thank the Lord that I'm not like this publican begin to point to all of our works and our good things. Apart from Christ, they're nothing. Everything we have and are are from the Lord, and so we must remind ourselves He must increase the imperative of the prominence of our Lord. Let me ask, is the Lord increasing in your life? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allowing the Lord to fill in the rest? All these things will be added to you as you seek Him and His kingdom first. The priority, putting the priorities where the Lord places the priority. Do not let the world define for you your priorities. Don't let the philosophy of those around you define your priorities. You find them in the Lord and in His Word. And John knew that. He said, I'm here for a period of time. The Lord will take me off the scene. John is about to go to prison and he'll spend his last, after his last message, you know, he won't get an award for his last message or some applause. He will be beheaded because of it. We're the Lord's. Whether he withholds or blesses or gives or refrains or takes away, as Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We spend our days striving and finagling, promoting this sinful, putrefying flesh. Perfumed corpses is what we are. All on the way to the grave, bragging and applauding and pointing to our works and our accomplishments when Christ alone deserves any plaudit, any praise, any recognition for anything that's done in this vile body of Chris Lamb. John was a beautiful, uses a beautiful picture here in verse 29. He, he gives the picture of a bride and a bridegroom. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. That's elementary, isn't it? The, man that's getting at, the guy that's got the bride, he's the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is fulfilled. You see how John knew his place? I'm just the best man. I came to help out the bridegroom. The, the, the best man in years ago would do all kinds of things for the bridegroom. He would arrange for all the, the details, transportation and everything. He was just the general lackey, you know, the gopher. Though it seems to be a place of honor in our wedding ceremonies now, the bride, the, the best man historically, the friend of the bride, as the scripture describes him here, did everything because most people know a groom has no sense on the day he's about to get married. He can't even dress himself. You know, he's just there, and I always tell him, don't, don't, don't say, just say I do the right time. We'll tell you what to do. You just stand up there, we'll, we'll help you out. 
the wedding attendants know their place, don't they? The wedding attendants are not the bride and the bridegroom. They don't try to upstage or outdo the bride or the bridegroom. John was elated just to hear the bridegroom's voice and being able to to be influential and being used of him and to know that he had done his part. Can you place your head on your pillow tonight rejoicing that you've done your part? If the Lord were to call you home now, could you say, It is well with my soul. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I've done what the Lord asked me to do. Or if you knew that your time had come today, would you say, oh Lord, I, I, I need to get some things taken care of here. He must increase. Oh, how important. Is there more of you seen in your life in ministry or do people see and sense the Lord? The imperative of Jesus alone being prominent. This leads to our second point and I'll just spend a moment here. The simple and second half of our text there in verse 30, the place of Jesus' followers. There's only one place for you and for me That's at Jesus' feet. Mary figured that out, didn't she? And chose that good part, he said, sitting at Jesus' feet. But this is where the battle lies. This will absolutely determine how effective you are in the kingdom and to what degree the Lord will truly be able to bless you. J. Hudson Taylor, who answered the call of the Lord upon his life, he trained medically to be a doctor and he He went to China and began the China Inland Mission and made absolutely amazing inroads into evangelizing that country. And uh, he was world known in his own day and time. And once he was being introduced to a large missionary convocation, a large audience, the the introducer used all kinds of superlatives to introduce uh, J. Hudson Taylor, which anybody who knew him knew that he was cringing at every word, and he kept using the word great, this great preacher, this great missionary, and on and on and on. And Taylor stepped to the pulpit and quietly and simply set the record straight. Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. By the way, did you notice the musts in John chapter 3? Notice them. In verse 7, Jesus said, Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. If we're considering this verb in our, uh, this, in our text here, he must increase, but I must decrease this intensifier. And then notice there in verse 14, the must of the Savior, where the Bible tells us, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then we are considering our must, if you will, the must of the servant. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the only way. It is an imperative. He must increase. Where are you today in this matter? Are you managing, directing, and guiding, and setting the the direction of your life or have you come to that place 
where you've absolutely submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost is your Savior. So many poor people try to go about establishing their own righteousness and saving themselves. Making up their own philosophy of life. How many times have I shared the gospel with someone who said, well, preacher, this is the way I see it. And they give me their view on it. And the only problem with it is not what the scripture has to say. I think that God will take all the good I've done and, and pile it up over here in effect and then, and then on the other side and, and hopefully and I, and my good will outweigh the bad. All I have to do is look in Chris Lamb's life to know that that is absolutely the most ludicrous thing that could ever be thought of by anybody. I don't know about you, but I battle myself and my flesh and my sin all day long, every day. If it were not the grace of God and all the grace of God, there would be absolutely no hope whatsoever. You must be born again. You see, that's all of the Lord, isn't it? He must bring you to that place of repentance and faith. But when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and shows you your condition, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. Believing is absolutely trusting Him, taking Him at His word, and depending on Him to save you and to make you His child. If anyone is saved here in this room today, it will be because Jesus Christ did it. He is the only Savior. It will be none of us that could point to anything that we've ever done. Oh, the graciousness of our Lord, the, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He must increase but I must decrease. Would you bow for prayer? Our Lord Jesus, we just come, this text shouts before us by the eternal Spirit. Lord, I fear that those who are struggling and striving in their own flesh have never, there are some who've never come to that place of simple faith and repentance and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're listening to the wrong voices, the, wrong, the voices of philosophy and, and feeling and reasoning, and not the authority of your word. Lord, we've sinned against you. We're born sinners. And then we sin as soon as we begin to choose because that is our proclivity. That's our inclination. And there's only one remedy for that, as we've seen, is Moses lifted up the serpent that you were lifted up to die in our place. Oh, by faith we look there. The riven and bruised and mangled and mutilated body of our Lord and realizing what cost it cost of our salvation. That that purchase, that purchase price is what the atonement cost, the sinless life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may those who You've never looked in the, with a look of faith to the work of the Savior. May they look now. May they look to you as the believing thief at the cross who started out cursing and railing. Finally looked to you and said, remember me. Oh, may those who are lost today call upon you in that way by faith. Your word says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And those of us who... Of know you as Savior, Lord. May we, as we evaluate where we stand in this me, this means of measuring and scrutinizing, we we give you our lives and our ministry and our 
our effectiveness and whatever it may be and ask you to use us. But Lord, we leave all of that to you. Help us to to realize that we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we know not when that will be. So Lord, as we close this servant, may we look very carefully and circumspectly in our own hearts and lives. Examine ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name.